Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast, where we share stories about those who have fought to overcome addiction. Join us every Tuesday and Thursday for the latest stories, tools, and tricks to sobriety. Now, here's your host, Brock Bevel. Welcome to the Chase the Vase podcast. I'm your host, Brock Bevel. I am honored and pleasured to have with me today guest Travis Sackett. Travis, man, thank you for coming on. I I see your book up here, man. My Life with Karma. Travis is an author. How long ago did you write that book, brother? Um, I published at the end of August. It took me about a year and a half to write. So, Right on, man. Congratulations on that. And I know that you and I have kind of a similar history, bro. Both of us being police officers, both of us being greatly affected by an opioid crisis in our life and addiction. Yeah, and that's hands down. I ended up getting addicted to OxyContin after a weightlifting injury. Let's go ahead and and me intro you just so we know who we're talking about. So Travis, you were a police officer. Yeah, you were injured. Like your whole goal in life was to be a cop, right? It was, man. Ever since I was a little kid, I grew up in an abusive household. My dad was a high school principal and at the end of his day, like to verbally and physically abuse me, my mom and my brother. So I looked at law enforcement as the protectors. I always wanted to be a cop. That was my goal. And when I got into law enforcement, I actually, I went a different route. I ended up doing dignitary protection for one of Wisconsin's governors. So that was very cool. Uh, awesome way to start my career. Well, Travis, we always start the the Chase the Vase podcast, thanking the first responders, the men and women out there who were on those streets, working the beats, and just keeping us safe out here. The Sheepdogs, we thank you for all that you're doing. We saw that. I don't know if you saw last week the funeral they had in New York City. Man, that thin blue line was awesome, dude. That was like the coolest thing I've seen. It was, man. The amount of turnout and just the brotherhood that they showed, unreal. Absolutely unreal. One of the coolest things I've seen in a long time. Yeah, man, that was that was awesome. So I know that you went to college to study criminal justice. Tell me about when this weightlifting accident happened and and how long you'd been on the department. Sure. So I was working for the department for about a year and a half, closing in on two years. Essentially, I was also, I was huge into powerlifting at the time. I had won a regional tournament for law enforcement and fire and qualified for worlds in Las Vegas. So I was definitely... Getting making a name for myself in powerlifting. What were your main lifts? So the big three, basically uh, deadlift, bench press, and then um, squats. Were, were you a thousand pound club? I was, yes. Yeah, I hit a thousand on squats. My bench was my lowest. That was 420 raw. And then I was deadlifting uh, 660 pounds. And I was what? doing that at, I was weighing in at, yeah, at 198. Man, 198, 660 deadlift, 420 bench, and a thousand pound squat? Yeah, yeah. I used to play soccer. So I've always had uh, big legs, always been good for a big squat. Man, that's awesome. So tell me what happened. Like, so you were within the department. Was this like a, a police games, police fire games? No, it wasn't. No, it was uh, WABDL. So whatever that stands for, I forget, but. It was a sanctioned powerlifting events. I only ask you that when I was with the police department, man, they they allowed us to do some traveling. We were playing football, dude. It, and it was like we were going up against big time like athletes from 
for the sheriff's department in San Bernardino. I remember these dudes, man. I was like, what are we doing here, man? It was cool. So I know the police fire, they do a bunch of cool stuff. So a sanctioned event, you're in their lift. What were you doing? Basically, so I didn't hurt it during the sanctioned event. I heard it, well, the first time I heard it training in the gym, just warming up deadlifting. Like, and it wasn't that major at the time. Where I really messed it up was actually at work. Uh, we had protests going on. And one of the things that I was assigned to was cooler duty. So basically, we had these big giant coolers for all the officers' food and water, beverages, all that kind of stuff. Being the big guy that I was, I decided, oh, I can move this thing by myself. No big deal. And I went down, went to pick it up went to twist to put it on something else. And right when I did that, I felt it in my lower back, just felt something pop and I knew something wasn't right. That's where I initially really kind of injured my back severely. Since I had to work the protest, it took a couple days to get to a doctor. Once I got to a doctor, they looked at my L4, L5 spine and said, I herniated two discs and one was ready to rupture. That was the state that my back was in. Was it mostly due to powerlifting or was it due to this this specific injury? Well, they thought it was probably a combination of both. They thought it was training, well, overtraining for powerlifting. And then the icing on the cake was essentially just the twisting the wrong way with my back in the cooler. Do you know what's interesting that a lot of people in police fire their medical injury is something like that. It's just getting out of bed. Or I know a lot of detectives where they go from the streets, they go into the office, they're in a chair, they get up and they like, they have a back injury. Exactly. Yeah, man. I mean, my thing, it was such a freak injury. And honestly, I thought I could just muscle through it. That was really my first instinct was, okay, even once the doctor told me how bad it was, I was like, all right, bro, whatever. I've qualified for worlds. I want to do the powerlifting thing. Nothing is going to stop me. So I was just trying to get after it. Nobody can stop me. I'm all the way up. Yeah, dude, I, I understand that completely because when the doctor told me the same thing, you know, hey, you're pretty messed up, dude. I don't think you're going to get back to work. Like it doesn't compute to us because we're warriors, right? We're not supposed to be injured. We're not supposed to be taken out on, on a silly, we're supposed to be able to live our 20 year career and go through it, man. And some freak accident takes us out. Yeah, that's exactly it. And the thing was too, since we were going through all these protests at the time, I couldn't take off, man. My team needed me. Everyone was relying on me. It was like, there was no way I could go to a sergeant and say, Hey, Sarge, my back's a little messed up. I need to take a couple days here. Like that definitely was not on the table. It was all hands on deck. We had departments called in from all neighboring areas to help with the protests. It was all go. So tell me what these protests were. What, what was happening? I know you're from, I don't know if you want it out there where you're from, but what was going on? Oh yeah, man. So I'm from Madison, Wisconsin. No problem no with that. Yeah, there you go. And uh, so the governor at the time, he was getting rid of unions, basically trying to make it illegal to unionize in the state of Wisconsin. So at first we had teachers protest, then we had truckers protest, then we actually had some law enforcement and fire protest as well. So it, uh, it got pretty intense. I think it lasted like 16 to 18 days. It was a long time to work an event like that. So 
you finally come down from the event, realize, hey, man, I got I got a massive issue. You go to the doctor. The doctor tells you multiple surgeries and you're not fit for duty. That's exactly it, man. You nailed it. Basically told me you're going to have to see your primary care doctor and see a specialist. He gave me 30 days of oxy at the time to basically give me a window to hold me over. And that was it. Pretty much, dude, go see your primary, see a specialist. 30 oxys. What were they? 30? What were they? Yeah, they were the 30s. Okay. How quick did you go through those? I actually took them as prescribed the first time through. So I basically, it was, I think about, man, maybe that lasted me around 10 days. I think taking them every three to four hours as prescribed, something like that. Then I went back to the same doctor, explained to him, hey, man, I'm not able to see my primary right away. And I got to work. So then he re-upped me on 90 days and added a muscle relaxant and something for sleep to the mix. Um, I think he added trazodone for sleep. And I forget what for the muscle relaxant. Man, and you were working on this. I was, yeah. But you weren't feeling a lot of pain. No, I wasn't feeling any pain at all. Brock, I was still going to the gym. And still lifting about 80 to 85% of what I was lifting. Because in my mind, I was still going to Worlds. Like, that was still on the table for me, even though, realistically, there was no chance in hell I was going to be able to do that. So tell me what the break is. Like, what was the breaking point? What happened? After the 90 days, that's when I realized, okay, I'm in deep with this drug. Like, I've developed this relationship. Now I'm clock watching. I'm no longer taking it as prescribed. I blew through the 90 days in about half the time period I was supposed to. So then I'm like, what do I do? And basically, that's when I did a little bit of the doctor shopping, was able to go to a different walk-in, get something alternative for meds, but not Oxy. I forget what they gave me, probably like Tylenol, T3 kind of thing. And, and you were it pissed, just didn't work. You were pissed. Oh, yeah. You know it. Yeah, absolutely. So that didn't work. So then one of the guys that I worked out with at the gym, he was a shady character. We'll put it like that. Like big dude, awesome to work out with. The guy that you want in your corner if there's going to be a fight to go down, but not necessarily a guy you want to affiliate with on a daily basis. And this was one of my lifting partners. And he told me, he said, Trav, not a problem, man. I can get you pain meds. So I was like, okay, yeah, I'll take them. So I started working with him, paying anywhere from three to $600 a pop. And he was charging me $10 a pill at the time. He could get me Vicodin, and then he was able to get me Oxy occasionally. Man, I wonder how this conversation happened, because a lot of people are like, what? You're a cop. This guy's just a bodybuilder. Yeah. So tell me, and I know in the gym, there's conversations all over the place. Oh, yeah. But tell me, how did it open up? Like, yeah, dude, I need some medication. It started with us talking about being natural versus being on steroids. And he was on steroids and I was natural. So that's where our conversation initially spawned from. It was like, okay, man, so really, what kind of gains are you seeing? I was interested in the steroids. Like, it was a line that I wasn't quite ready to cross, but I was like, yeah, I could just see the difference in this dude and how quickly he was blowing up. And I'm like, wow, part of me wanted that. Do you think that was your addictive personality coming out or you think that was just this drive? What do you think it was? A combination of both. 
Like, oh, for sure. Because I had that drive. I've always had the drive, but part of me always wants more. Like, it's just, that's the way I'm wired. It's like, give me more, give me more, give me more. And when it came to lifting and putting on mass, I was just like, I was never satisfied. I could be 5% body weight, 198 pounds, and I was not happy. I wanted to be more cut up. I wanted to be bigger. And yeah, just talking to him about steroids and then telling him about my back problem and being like, I need something better for meds. And him just being like, basically, dude, I got you, no problem. And I didn't ask questions. You just hit something that is, I hope people are like, wait, 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 I've heard this before. You said, I want more, I want more, I want more. You think about as addicts, we have one trait that's very, very similar. And that is our self-regulation. We don't have a ton of self-regulation. Think about an alcoholic, an alcohol beverage in front of an alcoholic. He's going to drink to excess. You put sex in front of a sex addict, the same thing, pornography in front of a pornography addict or opioids in front of an opioid addict. We're just, we're going to go until the wheels fall off, right? And, And what's cool is, is I hope people are seeing this is not only did you have an addiction now to opioids and maybe some Vicodin, the same strand, but you were also addicted to the gym and oh, yeah. you were trying to fuel yourself. Where do you think, Travis, all this was stemming from? That's a great question. I think a lot of it was my childhood and just never quite feeling adequate when it came to like my dad, to be real with you. Like always kind of feeling like that I wasn't good enough or that what I did wasn't enough. That's what drove me. And then to having a parent that was an alcoholic, I saw the flip side of things too. I saw the way he used alcohol, the way he confronted certain situations. And I looked at that like, okay, well, if my dad uses in this way, then I can use in a similar manner. Like it was learned behavior is really what it came down to. Isn't that interesting, man? We mimic what we see. And even in in addiction. So So you're having this conversation. The dude's like, hey, basically, I'll deal to you. You're spending how much money a week? Anywhere from three to 600. That's a lot of dope, man. Plus what you're getting from the doctor. Yeah, at first, until I got cut off by the doctor. But yeah. So in total, in your highest times of usage, what were you using? What did a day look like? Uh, It would be 18 to mid-20s of the 30s. I would start by crushing and snorting one or two and then taking one or two orally. And then it was basically every one to two hour rotation doing the same thing. And then I was chasing those so that I wouldn't get on the nod. I was taking um, Jack 3D, which was a pre-workout supplement. And I was putting that in like a monster energy drink and drinking that at work. So in a way, I was almost doing like a mini version of a speedball. And I just kept, that's how I got through my days. Exactly. Tell the listeners what a speedball is. That's what John Belushi, that's what Chris Farley, that's what they died from. So what is that? Okay. A speedball, to my knowledge, is cocaine mixed. And then it's, what is it mixed with? I'm going to ask you, you're, you've got more drug. It sounds like it's an upper and a downer together. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what basically you were doing is, is you were mixing your monster energy drinks. I mean, you were, you were pretty much mixing it all, which were uppers, yeah. Yeah. right? You were, dude, you were never coming down. 
No, no, not until like I would crash so hard at night. I would actually take a shot or two of alcohol. Not even that I like to drink just to try to help with that come down at the end of the day. Cause it was so severe and so hard that it was like, all I wanted to do was pass out. And then knowing that the next day I was going to have to get up and do it all over again. Did you become addicted to that chaos? Like, or did you feel Travis, like, man, my world is falling apart. I felt like my world was falling apart and I didn't know how to write the ship. And instead of trying to do anything, I was like, well, as long as I continue to go to work, collect a paycheck, keep my wife happy, keep everything in line, I'm like, I'll be okay. That's the way I looked at it. That only works for so long until it doesn't work anymore at all. And that's what I ran into. So who was seeing your behavior change first? Probably my coworkers, I would say. Because my work went from pretty much stellar work to very inconsistent. One day I would produce absolutely nothing. The next day, maybe I'd get on, do some camera work, like actually do something meaningful, and then go a couple more days with really not contributing much at all. And that was kind of the, the habit I got into, was doing just enough to get by and enough not to get called in to talk to a sergeant or a lieutenant was really the way I was operating. Did that ever happen? It did. So eventually, with the habit I had and how much I was spending, I started stealing. I stole credit card information from the gym where I worked out, and I was passing that information along and getting paid for it. So eventually, I got called into a lieutenant's office one day. I went to work just like any other day, and he said, hey, Travis, before you start your shift, you got to come in here and talk to me about it. And I was like, okay, not a problem. So I go in there and right away I saw two city police and what I assumed was a plainclothes detective. And I knew right away I was screwed. I'm like, okay, they're obviously here for me. And they dropped a file. Like, you know how they do the thing with like a file about this thick and throw it down and say, this is what we've got on you. Yeah, it is essentially what they did to me. And they asked me if I had anything I wanted to share, talk to them about. I told them, no, I needed to talk to an attorney. And right then they cuffed me right in my lieutenant's office, took me out in front of everyone that I worked with and put me in the back of a squad car. So in full uniform. Yup, in full uniform. Oh man, tell me what was going through your head right there. It was a lot of different feelings. The biggest feeling was fear because I'm like, man, I'm going to get taken to the jail in my uniform. Like, how am I going to survive this? And I didn't know if I was going to be booked in for a period of time, if I was going to get booked and released. I had no idea what was going to happen with me. So I was freaking out. The other thing, too, was when I got put in the squad car, they never safety locked my cuffs. So the whole time on the way to the jail, my cuffs were tightening up. So I was letting the officer who was driving know, and he's like, his response was, oh, man, you want to talk to me now? And then he shut his little like divider. And I was like, oh, OK, great, dude. So by the time I got to jail, I was bleeding from one wrist. It was dripping off my pinky all over the place. And I'm like, all right, man, like this is not the way you're supposed to do things. At least at the jail, they got the cuffs off me right away and they got me some treatment for my wrist. But I ended up with a radial neuropathy from that, from damage to the nerves. So, Travis, was there any sense of relief as 
you understood, man, maybe this is my chance to pivot. Maybe this is my opportunity to change. Or were you just frightened? I was just frightened, to be honest with you. I wasn't even looking at it as an opportunity to change at the time. I was looking at it like, how am I going to survive the next few hours? And then what am I going to say to my wife when I get home? That was the other thing that I had no idea. How did you survive and, and what did you say to your wife? Well, fortunately, I got booked and released. So that took a huge amount of weight off of showing up in uniform because I never made it into a holding cell or anything like that. So that was huge. This wasn't a like, you didn't harm anybody physically or you weren't a threat to society, right? This was like a white collar crime. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So in terms of my wife, like I was real with her and just told her, hey, this, I got arrested. This is what I've been doing. And this is what I got arrested for. And she didn't talk to me. She ended up leaving, going to her parents' house, which was a couple hour drive away, then texted me and said she needed time to process it, which everything I understood, all of that. But basically, we never really talked about it. Like, even when she came back, we ended up being more like roommates in a house than husband and wife. I was sleeping in a separate bedroom. She was going to work doing her thing. I was at home trying to get into treatment. And eventually I ended up getting a job in a restaurant as a server and caterer. And one day I worked a double shift and I came home and most of the stuff was moved out of our house and my wife was gone. So yeah, that's basically how our relationship ended was she moved out one day while I was at work. It's rough, man. I could still see that. I've been through two marriages. I understand. I'm on my third one. I I understand. What did you do then? Like, did you seek treatment? Did the treatment help? How did you overcome this? Okay. So I went to treatment for a year and I got sober. Yeah. And really like, even though I was in treatment for that long, I was kind of one foot in one foot out. Like I never really totally bought into the idea that I had an issue. Like I was like, okay, yes, I have an issue with Oxy, but I thought to myself, I can still drink. I can still do these other things. So one night I decided to go out drinking and I was on probation at the time for the thefts. So now I'm out in a bar violating my probation and basically just streamlining Long Islands. It's that whole mentality of more, more, more. And I was like, well, if I'm not going to get my fix from Oxy, I might as well get drunk. So I end up getting drunk, driving home from the bar, crashing my car into a curb, trying to drive the car off the curb, realizing something's all bound up in the front end. It's not going to work. Got out of the car. Then I was like, oh, I'm going to be sick. So end up throwing up, being on the side of a neighbor's house, trying to collect myself, leaning up against the car and setting off a car alarm. And then all hell broke loose. Basically, so at that time, I should preface it by saying our neighborhood was going through a fair amount of car thefts. Like it was late October, so it's still nice enough out in Wisconsin that people were still out and about in the yeah. And my car had been broken into about a week and a half before. So our neighborhood was on high alert. And here I am acting like a drunken fool, you know. This neighbor came outside. He had a big MIG light flashlight, one of the D cell ones, and he was shining it all around, screaming obscenities like, don't let me find you, blah, blah, blah. And me being six feet, like 
at that time I was around 220. I was like, what do I do? Do I run? No, that's not going to work. So I tried to hide behind a car in a different driveway and I was sticking out. There was no way this guy could see me. So I opened the car door, tried to duck in the front seat and just get down and stay low. And the guy came over, knocked on the window and he was like, what are you doing, man? Excuse my language, but that's how it went down. And I was like trying to explain to him, oh, I'm drunk. I'm just trying to get home. I live up the street. He seemed to calm down a little bit. So I went, reached, went to get out of the car. According to the police report at that time, they said I lunged at the individual. I'm pretty sure I just took a drunk stumble, but that was enough for him to say he was afraid for his safety. And he beat me with the mag light, fractured my skull in three different places. I had air that got to the cavity of my brain, broke my nose, had a traumatic brain injury and had to be taken to the hospital. So I got knocked out, woke back up, EMS, paramedics, everyone was on scene. And I had no idea how long I had even been out. They took me to the first hospital where once they figured out the extent of my injuries, they said, man, we can't treat you here. So I had to go to UW Hospital where they set me up with a series of surgeries to uh, fix the whole left side of my face, get the air out of my brain cavity. So I had two surgeries. And then after that, I was allowed to recover in the hospital for about a day and a half before the police came and snatched me up and took me to Dane County Jail. It gets worse, man. So once I got to the jail, they said I wasn't fit for general population. But the jail didn't have a medical wing or anything. So I went right to solitary confinement because I wasn't fit for Gen Pop. So that was the only place they could think to put me. So I spent seven days recovering from the traumatic brain injury all alone in solitary confinement before I was at least fit enough to join general population. And how are you recovering today? How are you doing? Today, so I'm considered fully disabled. I don't have short-term memory. Like, it's basically non-existent. Like, I'll remember we talked today, but I'll have no idea what we talked about. The other thing I really struggle with are horrible migraines. Um, I get anywhere from like one to three a week, and they absolutely just kick my butt. So I'm on medication for those, but it doesn't necessarily always work. So Travis, how are you doing with your addiction today? Oh, dude, that end of things, I'm I'm golden on. After I had the near-death experience and, you know, just getting beat down, I finally started taking things seriously. I got myself into an IOP program and really just devoted my life to figuring out what addiction was about and what it looked like for me and how I could better myself. So got involved with the IOP, graduated that. Then I stayed on as a mentor, helped other addicts for about a year before I tried to uh, move on with my life. I actually got into grad school and was going for community counseling, but because of my brain injury, like the school part of it was too hard. Like I couldn't pass the test because I wasn't retaining enough of the information. So I ended up dropping out of grad school, but it helped me in terms of turning my life around and just understanding more about counseling, more about addiction, all those things. So tell me about this book, brother, Life with Karma. What is it? 
So it's my recovery memoir. It basically goes over the stories that I've told you and pretty much everything else that it took for me to recover from the oxy addiction. And Karma is actually the name of a dog that I rescued. So in all of this chaos, when I was actually in active addiction, I ended up going out to this drug house and picking up a dog that was chained to a tree. They basically left her there for, for death. I don't know if they're using her as a bait dog or what the deal with her was, but just a beautiful brindle boxer that was horribly emaciated, just not well taken care of. and. I ended up going to a local hardware store, getting a bolt cutter, coming back, cutting her off the tree and loading her into my car and bringing her home. And she became my best friend. And she became the one thing that was still solid and there for me. Even after my wife left, uh, she left the dog. So I was fortunate that I had someone to stay with me and kind of ride through it all. And so as I was kind of going downhill and experiencing, all my trials, she was recovering, she was thriving. And I think just having her gave me something outside of myself to care for and something to think about that wasn't me centric. And it really, once again, then it really helped just put everything in perspective and give me something to live for. That's cool, man. I appreciate you sharing that. I got one of those dogs too. I got a, an English bulldog named Quinn and she has saved my butt. She was my my therapy. So I, I totally get that. I love that. So if we want to get this book, your memoir, My Life with Karma, Travis, how do we find it? Can we get it on Amazon? Yeah, the best bet is Amazon. I keep it on sale. The Kindle version is 99 cents. I just want to keep it accessible to everyone. And then the paperback is $14.99. You can also get it if you don't like Amazon. It's also available on barnesandnoble.com. Right on, man. So Travis, brother, I, this was a story, man. This was, whoo, this was, that was heavy, brother. And thank you for sharing it, man. Leave us some hope, man. Tell us something that you've learned from your recovery that can help other men and women. Man, what I've learned is essentially to take things, not even a day at a time, but man, take them minute by minute sometimes and just really give yourself enough love and enough self-respect that you're willing to take a step back from those situations that you used to just dive into and really kind of analyze things and say, look, what is the outcome of this going to be? Is it going to be positive or is it going to be negative? And this is something I really want to do. I think too often, especially kind of in the career field we were in, we're so used to just going right in, diving right into things and not necessarily taking that time to reflect and say, okay, let me pause. Let me really kind of make sure this is something I want to do. And I would recommend to everyone, take that pause. You know, it's the rest of your life and a few seconds can make a dramatic difference. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you, Travis, for chasing the vase. Thank you for being on today, man. I appreciate you. Just your story, your resiliency. I know you're doing big things. Check out my life with Karma Travis. If someone wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way? I would say Facebook. Hit me up on Facebook. Hit me with a friend request. I'll definitely add you back and just go from there. Travis Sackett, S-A-C-K-E-T-T. Check it out, guys. Thank you for chasing the vase. We appreciate you for checking us out. If you want to learn more, Gmail us at uh, chasingthevase at gmail.com and we will return and report. Have a great day. We're out. 
You've been listening to Chase the Vase Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcast to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more information, please follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook, or visit our website, chasethevase.com. Until next time, keep chasing the vase.